coming to you from a cozy little condo high atop old Fort Ward, Atlanta. Welcome, Welcome to The Ron Show on America One Radio. Here's your host, Ron Roberts. And I would say happy Monday to you, but if you live in the state of Georgia, and the majority of you who do live in the state of Georgia are University of Georgia Bulldog fans, it is not a good Monday. It's a <sighs> Monday. Um, and the Falcons, yeah, I mean, they won, but I mean, I don't know. It's kind of like, it's like you got that star kid, the one who can't fail at anything, valedictorian, uh, and still crashes the car over the weekend. And yet the, the dunce kid, the one that barely gets by and, but can drive a car very well. I mean, they got a C on their test and they want to put that on the refrigerator and you're like, yeah, okay, whatever. (laughs) That's kind of where we are. Anyway, uh, you did not come here to listen to me talk about sports, and I uh, readily understand that. Although I may a little bit later. Who knows? Um, not really happy with the way the whole college football playoff thing worked out, and I, I have some thoughts on that, but maybe this is the place. Maybe it isn't. we got so much more to get to today, by the way. Uh, Timothy Pratt joins us. Uh, he's a freelance writer, wrote a uh, piece in The Guardian. Bit of a bombshell. Your Atlanta Police Department seems to be letting uh, top-tier officials within the department use apps like uh, similar to WhatsApp, you know, the ones that disappear, the ones that uh, can be encrypted so that they're hidden. Mm-hmm. Why, why is that happening? And why did that just happen after the death of Tortuguita in the uh, land that the Atlanta Public Safety Training Facility is destined or not to go on? Mm-hmm. We'll discuss. Uh, Timothy Pratt with that bombshell at the Guardian. We'll have that link in today's show notes at ronchoetl.com. I want to start, however with the Atlanta Journal-Constitution publisher and president, Andrew Morse, deciding that, well, he's, he's got he's to take out a, a piece of pen and paper, or a piece of paper and pen here, <laughs> a piece of pen and paper, uh, to write his opinion on the Atlanta Public Safety Training Facility, which he does, and he uh, publishes in the Saturday AJC without at all mentioning that Cox Enterprises, parent company of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, is one of the primary, in fact, I think the largest donor to the Atlanta Police Foundation. Nowhere in there does he mention that. But I'm going to read it to you, and then I'm going to give you some notes. The headline was, Atlanta, we need the new public safety training center. That is, he says, our view. Andrew Morse, president and publisher. The people of Atlanta deserve to have the best trained, most responsible, most empathetic public safety officers in the nation, he writes. The people of Atlanta deserve to walk the streets without fear of violent crime and to have a police force and fire and rescue departments they can depend upon to protect and serve them, all of them. Therefore, Atlanta must build a modern training facility for our city's public safety officers. Yet the people of Atlanta are on the brink of having their best interests undermined by a relatively small group, he says, of violent extremists who place a higher value on dogma and national crusades than on the safety and security of all Atlantans. He left out the overwhelming thousands that showed up at hearings to voice opposition to this, who just voiced opposition. Andrew writes, To be clear, Atlanta's Public Safety Training Center project has been flawed, but it must be built. He writes, former Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms, current Mayor Andre Dickens, and Atlanta Police Foundation President and CEO Dave Wilkinson Share the blame for a process that has, at times, lacked transparency, don't forget that, clear communication and accountability, he writes. Morse continues, these missteps don't invalidate the need for the training center or justify the violent acts of extremists hell-bent on ensuring it is never built. But the result has been an erosion of public trust. This is unfortunate. 
since one of the primary fears of skeptics of the center is that they cannot trust public safety officers. Did I mention Timothy Pratt, who wrote a piece in The Guardian, is on to discuss... Here's where I mention freelance journalist Timothy Pratt from Gwinnett County wrote a piece in today's Guardian that outlines that the Atlanta Police Department has folks using the Signal app to communicate with each other about Cop City and to shirk open records law and hide their conversations from the public in general. He's on with me in minutes to discuss. Anyway, back to president and publisher of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, Andrew Morse's opinion piece. Reasonable critics have reasons to be upset. DeKalb County residents who live near the Key Road location were promised abundant green space in 2017. The city changed course. Andrew Morse writes, the mayor and the police foundation did not effectively explain the cost of the project or the sources of funding. Which is a good time for him to point out that the AJC is owned by... Anyway, uh, they have since clarified the taxpayer burden, which remains roughly one-third of the overall budget, but the damage was done in the eyes of skeptical public. Failure to communicate was an unforced error. Reasonable critics also have reason to be suspicious of the center. They have seen too many young black men fall victim to police brutality on America's streets. But reasonable critics are not the ones standing in the way. Um, sir, I'm a, I'm a reasonable critic. Anyway, he continues, Reasonable critics do not set fire to local businesses, as happened in Gwinnett County two weeks ago. They do not vandalize the homes and workplaces of community leaders, which has happened all year, and they do not spew hatred. The diary of Manuel... Tortuguita Tehran, who was killed in an exchange of gunfire with police near the training center site in January, included vitriol such as kill cops, burn police vehicles, and cops love being on fire. I mean, it's neat we get to read Tortuguita's diary, but don't we get to read the Atlanta Police Department's signal app conversations? Oh, that's right. Back to Andrew Morse. The death of any young person is tragic, but Tehran's worldview belies an antipathy for public safety officers that cannot be seen as reasonable. Simply put, there is no place for violent extremism and acts of terror in our city, period. He gets no disagreement from me there. I think I called out the situation in Gwinnett County two weeks ago myself on this show. Anyway, he continues. There is an irony to one of the fundamental arguments of reasonable and unreasonable critics alike. They fear the true aim of the facility is to train and equip paramilitary force to quell dissent and victimize young black men in Atlanta. There is no evidence of stuff to plan, only social media conspiracies. And decades of evidence that that's what law enforcement, it, whatever. Uh, the best way to guard against that concern is to have a modern facility with world-class instruction to train our law enforcement officers. Incidentally, he leaves out the fact that Fulton County wants to build a similar facility that Atlanta and Fulton County could do it for a fraction of the cost, combining their resources. And oh, by the way, under which jurisdiction and department's possession did the current facility fall into utter disrepair? And why do we not expect that to happen again? Back to Morse. The remedy for poor policing isn't to disband the police, which no one has, but to train officers to be better. Last year, 171 people were murdered in Atlanta, 83% of whom were African-American males. Those numbers won't improve if we take police officers off the streets or fail to equip them to do their jobs. Much of the vitriol and violence in opposition to the training center has been driven by people who do not live in our city. Are we doing this again? <clears throat> again, several meetings held seeking public input, hundreds to one ratio, citizens in opposition. Morse continues, they have come here to further a national agenda to, quote, defund the police. Stop Cop City has become a convenient rallying cry for the movement. It is understandable in a post-George Floyd world that some would fear heavy-handed policing. By the way, Andrew Morse is a white man. 
But the outside extremists don't understand Atlanta. Our African-American Democratic mayor, our white conservative Republican governor, and our openly gay police chief all stood before community leaders at the annual Crime is Toast breakfast last September and sang from the same hymnal. They were joined at the podium by some of Atlanta's most decorated public safety officers, a diverse group reflecting the community that they serve. Morse continues, what our city needs now is for reasonable people to separate themselves from extremists. And by the way, we have, whatever. The site has been selected. The funds have been deployed. Construction has begun, which I think we have a bone to pick with, uh, and is set to conclude by the end of next year. The police foundation, city officials, community leaders must work together to chart a path forward in the best interest of the people of Atlanta. If there are concerns about training and tactics, the police foundation must address them. Oh, well, he puts it in writing so that must happen, right? For their part, the foundation has pledged that the center will be open to the public. Can we get that in writing? Critics should take them at their word. Oh, yeah. Take them at their word this time uh, and hold them accountable. Trust but verify to the same organization that he says has lacked transparency. Uh, The city and police foundation must ensure the project comes in on budget and they must continue to be transparent with taxpayers about the costs. Dot, 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 for the first time. Oh, and check this out, y'all. Speaking of budgets and blowing them, if local residents will see their home values or quality of life decline by living next to the training center, listen to this. Rather than a park, the city should make them whole or help them move. Andrew Morse is saying more taxpayer dollars now to this project, if necessary. The city and the police foundation should identify more green space for residents of DeKalb County and make good on the initial promise made by residents. Again, who's going to pay for that? Mayor Dickens must make good on his promise that the city can fund the Public Safety Training Center and still address urgent issues such as health care, housing, and education inequality. President and publisher of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, Andrew Morse, continues, We need to choose reason over rhetoric. The center is not being built to suppress the people of Atlanta, but to protect them. The site is not being constructed on a pristine forest, but rather a plot of land that has been used for multiple purposes over the course of the last century, including a prison farm and a burial ground for zoo animals. That's kind of more reason not to, whatever. And the city of Atlanta has not suppressed the rights of voters. Oh, this is rich, y'all. The city clerk will soon begin the process of validating the 116,000 signatures organizers claim to have collected in favor of a ballot referendum on the training center. If the city can verify 58,000 signatures, 15% of Atlanta's registered voters, the measure would be put to a vote next March. Mayor Dickens has promised transparency in the process, but rightly reminded Georgia U.S. Senator Raphael Warnock in a letter that, quote, Standing in front of your local grocery store to collect signatures from customers who may be residents, while commendable, is vastly different from registering to vote and casting a ballot. If the signatures can be verified, Andrew Morse continues, the matter should be put to a vote, should be, put to a vote, and the voice of the people should be considered. But if the petitions do not pass muster, critics must accept the outcome and move on. Foreshadowing. Short-circuiting the laws will only serve to further undermine trust in our voting process, just as Georgia prepares to once again play a critical role in determining the next president of the United States. He's telling the far left, I need you to trust us so that the far right will trust us as well next election cycle. Sorry, but in the same piece, you talk about the distrust that's been sowed by current and past politicians in the APF from the start. This man's lack of awareness is kind of stunning. But back to his piece. This decision cannot be viewed in a vacuum, not in 2024, not in Georgia. Eroding trust in our institutions, that's some irony, uh, does not serve our city. The people of Atlanta need to be able to trust their voting process. They need to be able to trust their public safety officers. They need to be able to trust their elected officials, Morse writes, and they need to be able to trust a free and independent press. This is where he should have mentioned the 
ties with the Atlanta Police Foundation, right? Anyway, Governor Kemp continues to publicly blame, quote, the media, and specifically the Atlanta paper, for pushing an agenda to support the protesters. What? That is no more productive than a call to defund the police. The governor has taken a bold and commendable stance, calling for the community to support the training center and to denounce extremists who have resorted to violence to the detriment of our city. I agree with him. Now is the time to focus on reason over rhetoric. Eroding trust in our institutions does not make our streets safer. Andrew Morse finishes. As I mentioned, The Guardian reports that Atlanta Police Department officials have been using the Signal app to have communication about Cop City and shield it from the public. The author of that piece, Timothy Pratt, joins me next when The Ron Show returns. Welcome back to The Ron Show for Monday. Let's talk a little bit more Cop City while it's hot and fresh right out the oven. And thank you, Andrew Morse, for teeing us up. Speaking of transparency being an issue uh, in the... uh, construction of the narrative of the need for an Atlanta public safety training facility. I'm joined by the author of this piece that just hit today in The Guardian. And uh, I want to thank Timothy Pratt for joining me. Timothy is based in Gwinnett County and has been writing uh, for The Guardian and uh, The New York Times. You've written for a ton of top tier journalistic organizations. So uh, congrats on that. And thanks for joining me. I appreciate you giving me a few minutes. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So your piece basically exposes the fact that the Atlanta police department, or at least high-level officials within the Atlanta Police Department, have been using an encrypted phone app to communicate with themselves. The app is called Signal, and it sounds a lot like, I've never used Signal, it sounds a lot like WhatsApp. Is that kind of what it is, where you can't review the messaging if you don't have it on your phone, or it just goes away after you send it? Uh, Yes, it's similar uh, and and encrypted, uh, but but also the key thing is the, the ease with which you can delete messages so it's both things really but but in other words if you're texting someone you delete them first of all you have to make more effort but secondly they can still be retrieved from a server Uh, whereas with signal uh, you can set it to delete messages on a regular basis every day or week or whatever and then afterwards they're not retrievable on the server so a court couldn't go to signal and say we need these messages much the way they could go to at&t and get my text messages is that what you're saying that's the position so far. I think there's, it's you know, it's a, it's a signal is uh, has faced that in other jurisdictions that, that. But so far, as far as I understand it, for this piece, I didn't go into the the whole ongoing legal challenges that signal may or may not face as we move forward, right? Because uh, because of that very reason. But but go ahead. And, no. and, and so th- there's also this. Like if I had signal and I wanted to message you, but you don't have signal, you're not going to get it. So obviously there is there there seems to be some coordination going on within the Atlanta Police Department for there to even be multiple folks within the department to have signal to converse with each other and hide their tracks. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, this story that I have today in the Guardian is based on about 13 emails that I received through open record requests, and these emails show basically majors, lieutenants, captains communicating to other officers um, and telling them to to download Signal uh, sometime around January. Uh, and, and in a few places, uh, it was indicated the purpose is to be communicating about this police and fire department training center. Uh, most people refer to as Cop City. I remember reading in the piece that this seemed to dovetail, this all seemed to, to come about and, and to solidify within their rank after the death of Manuel Tortuga to Tehran. Is that correct? Am I getting the timeline right? Around the same, yeah, around the same time. It actually started before. And then, the, the, yeah, 
they began, there was an officer in the research department who began trying to find out if other departments had policies on, on this uh-huh. in December. And, and uh, he wound up writing 50 departments, only 10 answered, and none of them had policies. Wow. He, he, could, he could have done research <clears throat> on how, for example, in Michigan, when uh, an enterprising reporter wound up uh, exposing that state troopers were using sig- Signal, the legislature acted pretty quickly and, and passed a law prohibiting it for all state employees. And that's mentioned in the story as well. He didn't find this out. He said he communicated to his superior that there, he found no policies. And the next thing you know, there's, there's emails with, uh, like I said, majors, lieutenants, asking others to download the app because that's what they'll be using to talk about this subject. Yeah, you mentioned in the article that the app was widely used by police. Uh, does, this, does this seem to be uh, not just a local issue, but something that is happening throughout law enforcement across the country and around the world, maybe? Well, well I don't know how widely used it is. Uh, people that I interviewed who work in uh, digital transparency or First Amendment issue uh, type organizations said they're seeing more and more of it. I don't know that anybody has quantified it, though. And and. You know, there's this case in Michigan, which was just uh, uh, 2021 that I mentioned. And in, and in Phoenix, yes, police also post George Floyd or during the in the prosecution and or attempt to prosecute the George Floyd protesters in, in Phoenix. It was uh, revealed by reporters there that uh, they were using signal. <coughs> Excuse me. I think there are some of the officers faced discipline or even were fired for that and other issues. So it is, yes, it is. I don't know that anybody's quantified it, but you're seeing these episodes happening where police and and other public officials are are using these encrypted apps that can easily disappear messages. And so there there isn't a federal law, there's not a state law, there isn't even a a, a city policy or a departmental policy on using the Signal app. But I noticed in the article you you spoke about one officer in particular who had Signal on his personal phone, but not his uh, (laughs) department-derived or professional phone. That's what it says in the email. <laughs> wow. And I'm laughing because that's, yeah, that's amazing because he's the emails that ask others <laughs> to down so they can communicate with each other. And he says, don't try me on the city phone on with this app. Try me on my personal phone. And uh, that runs into all kinds of problems with uh with, with open records laws, as, as you know. Yeah, yeah, open records, sunshine laws, all, all that sort of thing. That, that's what's so interesting about it. It's, it's as if they're, they're, they're clumsy in, in not wording their emails so that it's not obvious what they're talking about while they talk about hiding from open records policies to cover their tracks or to keep their communication between themselves and themselves only. Right. I mean, we'll see if that changes, right? Well, uh, we'll yeah. see if the- the state legislature reacts to this. Uh, that's uh, that's another possibility, isn't it? Uh, again, you know, as, as Andrew Morse at the Atlanta Journal Constitution right writes, you know, transparency and and and, and tr- trusting the process and trusting uh, trusting these entities is so important, right? It's amazing those two things happen around the same time, but I think we'll get to the point where more and more states and, and other jurisdictions will face this issue and 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 have to prohibit the use of these apps for public employees. Timothy Pratt joining me with the breaking story that the Atlanta Police Department, some at least high-level officials within the Atlanta Police Department, have decided to keep you from seeing their communications between each other by using the Signal app, which makes messages disappear.
all while we're talking about transparency and trusting our police officers as they seek a 90 to $120 million training facility. Sorry, just to be clear, it won't automatically uh, delete messages, but it, it, you can tell it to do so on a regular basis. And many people use it for that reason. And I'm sure if you did a, a FOIA, you'd probably find that there's not much to get from the Atlanta Police Department's uh, signal apps usage. But did you file one? I did, and we'll see what happens. But but um, but the other thing is, um, th- th- these emails show that they're communicating via signal with other entities too, the mm. FBI, New York Police Department, about Cop City as well, and corporations involved in the project as well. So it sounds like well, we we could ask our city council person to draft some legislation at the city level, or we could ask our our, our house or, or state senator to do this. But it sounds like the most expedient way to undo this practice is to just call your congressperson or senator and say, "Do you abide by this? Because I don't. This this seems to be bad policy." Well, we'll see if it, yeah, we'll see where it goes from here. Yeah. Well, I'm putting a freelance journalist in the uh, uh, opportunity to to be a pundit, and that's unfair of me. I appreciate you uh, for. <laughs> For sticking to your journalistic ethics, unlike Andrew Morse at the AJC. So, uh, <laughs> Timothy Pratt, freelance writer with The Guardian in today's story. We'll have that in today's show notes at ronshowatl.com. Thanks for joining me. I appreciate it. Thank you, Ron. Take care. Back to redrawing maps when we return on The Ron Show, the America One Radio app, americaoneradio.com, or wherever you podcast. Broadcasting five days a week to make common sense common again. This, this is The Ron Show on America One Radio. All right, welcome back. Uh, our question of the day, by the way, you can join us at Ron Show ATL on Twitter, X, or Instagram, or Facebook and answer your, uh, your question of the day. Question, that would be, who would be the four TV game show hosts you would put on the Mount Rushmore of game show hosts? We just decided, let's try something new here, a little conversational off the cuff and sort of on a sidebar there uh, for the show. Wink Martindale of Tic Tac Doe fame turns 90 years old today. Wink, still going. Uh, Tic-Tac-Toe was one of those shows we used to watch religiously weeknights before uh, primetime television. It was like that. And I remember uh, Joker's Wild. Joker, Joker. And um, let's see, of course, Jeopardy, Wheel of Fortune have been going on for decades. And and, and perhaps Alex Trebek, the late Alex Trebek, perhaps Pat, uh, Pat Sajak belong on your Mount Rushmore. Anyway, answer that if you don't mind. Who is on your Mount Rushmore of TV game show hosts? You got four options that you can uh, give us there at Ron Show ATL on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Last week, as we were wrapping the show, we had a few minutes to chat with Ken Lawler from Fair Districts, Georgia, and we were talking more specifically about the Georgia General Assembly maps for the House, Georgia House, and Georgia Senate, and then the Federal Congressional District maps dropped, and so we didn't have a whole lot of time to expound on that. But suffice to say, that is thrown... Uh, some chaos into the inner workings. And Ken was at the Senate subcommittee hearing today to give his thoughts on the Georgia congressional map redraw, which like in the house and Senate at the general assembly level creates chaos kind of unnecessarily actually in following the federal court judges edicts. You may recall, you should recall that a special session was necessitated after U.S. District Court Judge Steve Jones back in October ordered the state of Georgia to draw black majorities in one additional congressional district, two additional state Senate districts, and five additional state House districts. So instead of just doing what was necessary to do that, in just about all three cases map-wise, Georgia Republicans made wholesale changes to districts not even adjacent to the new Majority black districts. And in some blatant cases, they were going for 
district's voters where the district was majority minority, not necessarily majority black, but majority minority to uh, steal from those districts to accommodate the creation of the majority black district, but also to preserve the white conservative majority, not just to preserve the majority, but but to keep it intact, to leave it untouched numbers wise. So while we had Ken on to talk about the state house and state Senate maps, Ken, obviously, just like the rest of us, as we were throwing the show together, didn't have the opportunity to really look at the new federal congressional map and weigh in on that. But he did show up at today's Senate subcommittee hearing to give his take. And I apologize. He's a bit overmodulated. He's kind of close to the mic there. But, you know, this is on YouTube. So you get what you get. All right. The floor is yours. Thank you, Chair Eccles, members of the committee. Glad to be back to discuss our nonpartisan analysis on the congressional map. Uh, again, uh, our principles in looking at these maps are uh, two things. Number one is, did you does the map implement the remedy? And number two, does it contain changes for political gain? Uh, we have disagreements about some of those principles, which we'll talk about. So again, we have a, you, have, you have in front of us your, your, our, our scorecard. Everybody should have that uh, with our two-part pass-fail test. Um, on the racial demographic test, we believe this map fails the test, and I'll explain why. Uh, first of all, we agree that uh, the map does implement new Congressional District 6 as a black majority district. On a technical matter, as the Chair mentioned in her presentation, District 5 also has now gone from below 50% to just above 50%. So it actually counts as a new black majority district, but from where it was, but it was already a very strongly performing black opportunity district, so it really doesn't add in terms of uh, participation for black voters. So really what you've got here, the map does add the one as requested by the court. Our issue with the map and the reason we say it fails the test is because of the way District 7 has been treated. District 7 was a minority opportunity district in our view. Yes, it was a coalition, but it was a very strongly minority coalition at around 67% minority voters. The new map has it at 33%. So we clearly believe that this is in violation of the spirit of the court's order, notwithstanding, uh, Chuckles, your um, uh, interpretation. Our view, and I admit I'm not a lawyer, not a Voting Rights Act expert, but our, my interpretation would be that the purpose of the judge stating the uh, or, or the writing the order the way he did was that he wanted the Voting Rights Act protections, which protect all voters of color and language minorities, that 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 those those other minority groups should retain their protections under the map. Our view is that District 7 does not retain those protections as a, it was a strong minority district uh, with, with a coalition, but is no longer a strong minority district at all. So by losing District 7 as a minority district, we believe that this is, this is uh, our, our view is that it does not pass muster, it does not meet the requirements of the court order. That's our interpretation. Um, um, uh, okay. On the, on the political side, again, we disagree with the objective, the, the political design of the map. Uh, we've been saying at the, since the beginning of the session that our belief is that this exercise should be about implementing the remedy and all political considerations should be off the table. Uh, we know that we know that this is a disagreement from the way the the, uh, the 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 committee treats this process. That you're trying to maintain the political uh, balance of the state. 
Our view is that that consideration should not be in, employed here. And as a result, uh, we give the map a fail because of repurposing District 7 as a was Democratic district, not a Republican. So we just disagree with the principle here, and our analysis would show that uh, that's why we would fail the map. Now, let me explain one of the reasons why we disagree with this principle. This is something that we call mid-cycle redistricting. Mid-cycle redistricting is when a map is changed without waiting for a census and without in direct response to a requirement in a court order. Unfortunately, Georgia has a very long and sordid history of mid-cycle redistricting. Just so you know, since 2006, there have been 64 different districts altered in mid-cycle redistricting without waiting for, um, again, without waiting for a census and without waiting for a court order. These changes have always been done for political purposes, and by the way, both parties have been involved. This is not a one-sided problem. Our, our view is that mid-cycle redistricting, frankly, is a practice that should be banned. We, sh we, should, we would love to see that practice just taken off the table completely. The time to deal with the partisan matters is that when you redraw the map for the census, not at any other time, and not, uh, certainly not in response to a court order which is focused on implementing a remedy for, for uh, in this case, a violation of the Voting Rights Act. So our problem with this issue, our issue, the reason we're objecting, and the reason we are not raising the issue uh, that we raised two years ago about the, the partisan balance of these maps at this time is because we think the partisan considerations, political considerations, should be off the table in this procedure. We simply disagree with the principle. We understand your principle is to do it that way. We believe it's not. Now, lest you think that we are doing this, we are making this statement uh, sort of as a protection to, uh, for Democrats, let me explain a couple things. First of all, this committee is probably not aware that last week we gave a failing grade to the Democratic caucus proposal on the House map. That map failed and we said that it failed. We are equal opportunity critics. <laughs> we have criticized both parties when necessary. Secondly, I'll remind that the member, many of the members of the committee were here in 2021. When the congressional map was debated in 2021, there were two proposals on the table. The one that the committee, the, the map that was enacted and a democratic proposal. At that time, I was the one who testified for our group and I said, I don't like either one of those maps. <laughs> Both of those maps go too far in their respective partisan directions. We said that the fairest map was between the two. Again, we did not re-raise that point here because we're not trying to relitigate 2021. We'll wait till 2030 to have that conversation. We just think it should be off the table here. So again, we are doing our best to be nonpartisan here. We're explaining what we think our principles are for how we evaluate the maps, and I would welcome any questions you have about the scorecard, the information in front of you. Interesting that he points out that the group that he advocates for, as the chair for actually, is a nonpartisan organization, and that, as he said, they also didn't like Democrat versions of maps in 2021 or last week. The argument I found sort of interesting was his premise that the partisan nature of redistricting actually belongs after a census, but not in a court-ordered General Assembly session like what we're experiencing right now. That's interesting. Could be a legal argument that 
they wind up again before Judge Steve Jones. And understand that this map really throws a lot into chaos here. According to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, I'll read you exactly how they spell it out because they write this better than, than I could. The congressional map Friday would split Lucy McBath's current district, that's the one he was talking about, District 7, between two Democratic and two GOP con- uh, incumbents in what she called another, quote, blatant attempt to make me lose my seat. They've done this before. McBath's previous district was also redrawn in 2021, leading her to challenge another Democrat, Carolyn Bordeaux, in a bitter primary last year. Democrats say they're optimistic the judge will reject the U.S. House map. Uh, they note his ruling specifically called for, quote, an additional majority black district in West Metro Atlanta, not just a reshuffling. Let me give you some more feedback from today's Senate subcommittee hearing, though. Good morning, committee. Thank you all so much for the opportunity to be here today. My name is Cindy Battles, and I am the director of policy and engagement for the Georgia Coalition for the People's Agenda. Um, I'll um, echo what Ken Lowler said. We managed to make both political parties angry with our thoughts, including when we presented the unity maps during the 2020 um, redistricting cycle, which no one liked. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the congressional maps that are being presented today. We do not, in fact, feel like this meets the judge's order. Um, You mentioned that coalition districts aren't protected by Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. I'm going to point out that the 5th and 11th districts um, actually disagree with that and have said that coalition districts are protected by Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act because they're a voting bloc that um, are impacted in similar fashion when we talk about housing, when we talk about education, when we talk about voting and election bills, these this diverse county, Gwinnett County, is equally impacted by these things, um, even up to the point where we still don't have an opportunity weight on our QBE. So they, they do have similar interests. They are a community of interest. So dividing this county up in four different ways is diminishing their voting capacity. The kindest way she's saying this, honestly, is that People of color, marginalized Americans have had to form this coalition because of a white majority or a white empower does all that it can often to benefit itself at the expense of people of color. Varying different people of color, not always people of color on the whole, but in parts. Here, let me explain it this way. There's the LGBTQIA+, right? And with anti-trans legislation, there was this thinking within the conservative movement that You can get a lot of the LGs and the Bs to agree that these Ts are weird, man. No, we're a unity coalition. You come for one of us, you come for all of us. That whole gays against groomers movement? Yeah, that was an attempt to divide us, to conquer us. And that's what this is in map form. Additionally, the moving of Lucy McBath from another district. Um, we are nonpartisan, but watching someone be removed from her district for a, or ch- her district change for the third time, yep. if we're going to tell voters that their vote counts, we can't just tell them, hey, your vote counts if you vote Republican. Mm. If you are trying to um, convince voters to vote for you, then you can't tell them that they have to vote for your party, even if it's against their interest. And what we have seen in the state of Georgia is that there's about a 49 percent, 51 percent 
voting population in this state, and that is not reflected in the way that these maps have been drawn. Bingo. So what I would ask this committee to do is, I, I know we're on a short timeline, I understand that, but let's draw maps in a way that really reflect what the voters of Georgia want and yep. need. Oh my God, was Cindy Battles listening to my show last week when I said that? I think I said that, uh, what is it, like 63, 64% shows up in these new maps, especially the congressional map. I can go to that specifically and say, you don't have Georgia showing up to vote 63, 64% GOP in any election anymore, not since 1988. So why do our legislative maps reflect that? Because the party in power likes staying in power. This is not democracy, y'all. And I and I, I know that this has been done by Democrats. We talk about this all the time. I understand what the history of this state is. I understand what the history of the civil rights movement is. Yeah, see, I had a conservative come at me with this. Well, Democrats used to do this in the state of Georgia as well. Uh, yeah, Democrats, when they were white male conservatives... But, but, but Cynthia McKinney's district was... Cre- yes, again, Voting Rights Act required that some districts had to be created because of past wrongs that current conservatives can't seem to stop doing. It cracks me up. Uh, we had Tim Scott running for president. Nikki Haley, she's a South Asian American. Why can't we win over these voters? Because you keep doing sh- like this. So so let me ask this. What in the world are we saying when we are saying never in the history of this state have we set aside partisan interest to let the voices of Georgians be the number one priority when we're drawing our districts? This could be the first time in the history of the state mm-hmm. that politicians looked at people in, in Georgia and said, hey, you know what? What you want and need as a voting block or or a person who cares about your state is more important than whether or not we retain power. And that's what I would ask you to do in this process. Thank you. Honestly, I don't even know why we're debating this stuff, because all the valid concerns can be brought to these Senate subcommittees, the House subcommittees. They're going to vote the way they're going to vote. They're going to put it to the floor vote, and they're going to get what they want. And when it goes before the judge again, he's going to do just like they had to do to Alabama and redress. See, here we are again trying to be Alabama, y'all. More on show after this on the American One Radio app, AmericanRadio.com, wherever you podcast. Final segment of the Ron Show for Monday. We'll have to get back to Cop City because we've got some breaking news. But first, I wanted to uh, cover my uh, new little segment, question of the day. It is Wink Martindale from Tic-Tac-Toe. It's his birthday today, 90 years of age. So the question I asked was, who belongs on your Mount Rushmore of TV game show hosts? That would be four, you know. Mount Rushmore has four heads on it. So we said you got to choose four TV game show hosts to go on your Mount Rushmore. Uh, Victoria in Decatur, Georgia says, Alex Trebek, Bob Barker, Wink Martindale, Chuck Woolery. She gives an honorable mention to Dick Clark. Yeah, yeah, he was on the $25,000 pyramid. Okay. Uh, Ginger and Augusta writes, Alan Luden. I gotta look Alan up. Alex Trebek, Bob Barker, and Bob Eubanks. Who is, oh, I see Alan Ludden from Password. Oh, yeah, the password is. Okay, Ginger's going in the Wayback Machine with that one. Okay, all right. Uh, let's see. Katie in Powhatan, Virginia says uh, Bob Barker, Alex Trebek, Gene Rayburn from the match game. Remember him? Uh, and Peter Marshall from Hollywood Squares. She throws an honorable mention to Monty Hall from Let's Make a Deal. Oh, yeah. And Bob Eubanks. And now she says she would actually bump Gene for Bob. Okay. Uh, Jennifer in Grovetown, Georgia says Bob Barker, Alex Trebek, Wink Martindale, Pat Sajak. Yeah, she and I are of the same generation. I get that. And uh, our own Jeremy Brasile from America One Radio says, Bob Barker, Alex Trebek, Bob Eubanks, Bob Eubanks from the Newlywood Game. Oh, we grew up on him. And Richard, give me a kiss, Dawson. 
All right. Those are good. If you'd like to uh, add who you think should join the Mount Rushmore of TV game show hosts in honor of Wink Martindale's 90th birthday. It doesn't have to be Wink, but give us four names, TV game show hosts. You can do that at Ron Show ATL on Facebook, Twitter, X, or Instagram if you'd like. And listen, I really wanted to cover a couple of more huge stories, uh, one being the college football playoff committee just utterly screwing the pooch. And I have some points to make about that. But again, this is not a sports podcast, although a lot of people have been talking about it here locally. Anyway, um, I'm just going to have to pass that. And also, this dude stole a MARTA bus to take people to Waffle House. And I don't have time to discuss that either because I have more in the Cop City saga. Uh, we understand that uh, Atlanta City Council person Liliana Bakhtiari is supposed to, and City Council is meeting right as I put this show together, so we'll have to get on this tomorrow. Um a referendum policy when it comes to petitions and referendums. But here's the big story. Mother Jones uh, broke this story earlier this afternoon. A prominent election rights lawyer is calling out Atlanta's voter suppression on the Cop City referendum. Mark Elias at the Elias Law Group has now entered the chat. In fact, he is supporting the Vote to Stop Cop City Coalition. Um Let's see who wrote this at Mother Jones. This would be uh, Eamon Whalen. Says one of the most prominent Democratic Party-aligned law firms, the Elias Law Group, led by noted election lawyer Mark Elias, has waded into the legal battle surrounding the proposed ballot referendum for Atlanta's Public Safety Training Center, PSTC, better known as Cop City. On Monday, the Vote to Stop Cop City Coalition, the organization leading the campaign to place the building of the controversial police training center onto the ballot for a citywide vote, sent a memorandum to the city government with a clear message. Atlanta must not engage in voter suppression on the referendum. The memo includes a draft of a proposed ordinance that, if adopted, would standardize the city's petition review process for ballot referendum and prevent the use of the discredited verification tactic known as signature matching, according to a copy shared exclusively with Mother Jones. A representative from the Vote to Stop Cop City Coalition also told Mother Jones that Atlanta City Council member Liliana Bakhtiari will be introducing the ordinance to the council. Article continues, the drafted ordinance is supported by the Elias Law Group, helmed by Mark Elias, one of the most prolific attorneys in the country on voting rights litigation, and threats to democracy. In the past, Elias has advised both the Democratic National Senatorial Committee and the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee. He is the former counsel for the Democratic National Committee and the White House under President Joe Biden. Elias' law firm oversaw Democrats' opposition to most of the lawsuits from Trump allies attempting to overturn the 2020 presidential election. In 2018, the New York Times called him arguably one of the most influential of unelected Democrats in Washington. He is a huge get. Uh, back to the article. Elias' entrance into the Cop City debate is part of a broader shift. As activists have attempted to put the facility up for a vote, local politicians and officials have delayed or stalled the process. Using tactics Democratic politicians have repeatedly called out in Georgia as a hindrance to democracy when done by Republicans. The anti-Cop City protests have now added another flank of support. Mainstream Democrats frustrated by subversion of election procedures. Literally, the plot thickens here. Uh, next uh, paragraph. It means Elias Firm finds itself aligned against an unexpected opponent. Mayor Andre Dickens, a Democrat and member of the 2024 Biden-Harris Campaign Advisors Board, along with a majority Democrat city council. Several high-profile Democrats and voting rights stalwarts 
have come out against Mayor Dickens and the city of Atlanta's handling of the referendum petition process, including former gubernatorial candidate and state legislator Stacey Abrams, Senator Raphael Warnock, Bernice King, and a long list of Georgia-based voting rights organizations. Dickens is joined in his support for the facility by Georgia's Republican Governor Brian Kemp. So wait, we do have time for the Marta Waffle House? Uh, let's do it. Roll with the tape from 11 Alive. This morning, one person is in police custody accused of stealing a Marta bus. Marta <laughs> officials tell us this person got on an empty bus in Lawrenceville in the Steel Drive area on Lawrenceville Highway. They say the suspect verbally abused the driver and then took the bus on a ride through Stone Mountain Park. Eventually, police were able to catch the suspect. That person is facing hijacking charges this morning, but thankfully no one was hurt. Now, according to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, this fella, Jamari Lee of Stone Mountain, got on the bus at Lawrenceville Highway. There was a passenger on the bus. He was kind enough to drop them off at a nearby Waffle House before going to Stone Mountain Park. <laughs> hey, man, look, I know you stole the bus and all, but but I'm jonesing for some scattered smothering cover. Do you mind? Uh, like, I, I got to have me a patty melt. I need me some waffles. Oh, my God. L look, there's a waffle. Can you just pull over right here? Sure, man, I got you. Hang on. So this happened Sunday afternoon, so it may not have been breakfast food. It, it definitely could have been the patty melt, right? Uh, well, you're going to get the scattered... Whatever, you can get them whenever. That's the beauty of waffle. Anyway, it's my understanding that the guy got on the bus, didn't have fare, was arguing with the driver about the fare. The person threatened the driver. The driver got off the bus with the threatening person still there to go report the threats, at which point the nutbag stole the bus. Okay, driver, if someone's arguing with me about riding my bus... I'm not leaving my bus. Anyway, links and show notes for that and more, ronshowatl.com for today. That's going to do it. Back tomorrow, 5 to 6 p.m. on the America One Radio app, americaoneradio.com, wherever you podcast. Get more at ronshowatl.com. We'll see you tomorrow.